Greetings, everyone. Good to be back in Tyler again. It's an especially uh, beautiful day for me because I had some very good news yesterday. A couple of weeks ago, we went up to Colorado, and I was up there for quite a little while. My son Matthew went along and Charlie Gross, and we met a couple, well, a gentleman who lives up in South Fork, the other side of the San Luis Valley, uh, Ken Wilson, who was a member of this church. And I took my bow and my quiver of arrows, and I'm stomping around in the mountains up there trying to, uh, everybody who is anti-hunting, please tune me out, shoot a bull elk. And for quite a number of days, I was camped out at about 11,500, walked all the way up to 13,000 feet, and I was up above 12,500 a lot of times. And we're talking about 60-degree slopes and walking up to where you can see 100 miles in all directions. Well, I did not bring a bull elk back. I sort of missed my opportunity because one snug up behind me I didn't know was there, and I had already put my release in my pocket, and when I stood up, he jumped around. I grabbed my cow call and whistled, and he came galloping back and conveniently stood broadside about 30 yards over there. My arrow hit a twig, went up, around and down, buried in the dirt, bent the arrow, startled the bull, and away he ran. What was wonderful about sleeping up at that elevation and working so hard up there was, first of all, it melted away about seven or eight pounds. Secondly, it expanded my lungs and thickened up my blood and got me in pretty good shape. So, when I came back just last week, I went to the doctor and I took a stress test. And I found out, according to the doctor and the actual chart that he made yesterday and what his nurse and the doctor said was, that I passed that stress test with the best results of anybody who's ever been on it, the exception of a professional athlete about half my age. I had absolutely zero problem of any kind, and uh, I was just tickled to death. I mean, really, I was just elated when I walked out of the doctor's office to uh, get that kind of a report, because I imagine there are very few men who are crowding 60 years of age who would be able to follow me up to 12,500 feet and live up there for about a week and trying to get after some of those long-legged elk. Matter of fact, there are probably a lot of younger men who couldn't do it either because they're not in the kind of condition where they ought to, uh, where they would want to do that without some kind of severe risk. That made me feel very, very, very good, even though I don't have any meat for the larder yet. We still have just a little bit of antelope left over from last year, but hopefully later on in the year I'll be able to get a deer here in Texas or maybe uh, a deer in Colorado eventually before the season is all the way over. I don't know. But I wanted to share that with you because I was just really tickled to death to uh, get that report from the doctor. God says that the very universe itself and life upon it is the record that we have a choice of two different ways that has been set before us. In Deuteronomy, the 30th chapter, he said, I call heaven and earth to record, or to record, if you wish, in the past. Deuteronomy, the 30th chapter, that he said, I have set before thee, this is verse 19 and 20, life and death. Now, all nature teaches us that lesson. In nature, when you watch some of these television programs like Bill Burrard or National Geographic or some of the very interesting programs that come along on Channel 13, and you're seeing the constant struggle for survival, whether it is army ants or uh, mountain sheep or elk or deer or huge seals up in the far north or the big whales of the sea, you see life and death, survival, little baby whales being born, 
You see the nesting habits of birds and how they reproduce. It is actually that cycle that, I, that helped me enjoy this hunt so very much because I had what a little, what a little kind of a reed thing called a cow call. And we were in the season called the pre-rut. That means before the cow elk come in what is called estrus or the male elk, which is the big bull, uh, is in what they call the rut. Now, God has done that in nature. And in the fall, when the antlers are very, very hard and they have rubbed all kinds of trees, and you can see them, trees this big around, just polished, smooth, with chips all over and bark shredded off as the big bulls are testing the strength of their antlers. And all over the hillsides will be hundreds of little quakies or aspen about that big around. And about this high, they're snapped straight off. And you can see in acres and acres, maybe a couple, three hundred of those. That is the bull testing out his brow time. He will walk along and take his brow tines and just snap that little aspen straight off. You can see scrapes and places where they wallow and places where the bulls are testing their strength. Because I sounded like a lovesick cow and there was a young bull that was still in velvet, he came sneaking up behind me on cat's feet and I didn't even know he was there. And yet when I walk in that same forest in what they call black timber of blue and Engelman spruce and Douglas fir, at about 12,000 feet or better, it sounded like me stomping around through a bowl of Rice Krispies. I could not be quiet because all the little bitty pine cones and needles and twigs are all over the forest floor, and it was crackling dry, and it was impossible to move quietly, and that big bull sneaked to within 30 feet of me. If I'd been reading a newspaper, he could have read the headlines over my shoulder. I didn't even know he was there. This constant cycle of reproduction is what caused that bull to sneak up to me because he thought I was a lonely cow. It is fascinating to get out in nature and to see the cycles that are in play, to see everything that is going on, to be in the top of the mountain at a night like that, to look up and to see the stars so close that you could reach up and touch them or so it seems, and to realize that those gigantic stars out there are in some cases, would you believe, bigger than the entirety of our solar system. The 12 years that Voyager has been journeying out past Venus, it would not have left from the core of Betelgeuse to get to the outer wall or the outer shell of that gigantic supernova, a star so big it would absorb the entirety of our own solar system. And you're looking at it as a winking, twinkling, little tiny dot or speck of light out there in the blackness of the night. It has always been to me a spiritual experience to go up there. You are literally closer to God. You are in raw nature, drinking water out of a bubbling stream that ran underground for a couple hundred yards. You're right where the trees are so stunted that above them a few feet they can't even grow anymore. Nothing but lichens and moss can exist above what they call timberline. You can catch gorgeous brook trout, native trout that have been here reproducing since the time shortly this side of Noah that no man has ever planted in little rocky creeks and mountain lakes and put them in the frying pan and look at this gorgeous little creature with beautiful bright red fins and a kind of a white tip and little orange uh, kind of purple spots all over it, just so beautiful that you just are in awe as you hold him in your hands, ice cold out of a fresh mountain stream. It's a fabulously rewarding experience. You're totally away from the city. No smog, no sirens, no telephones, no television, living in a little tiny pup tent, sleeping on the ground in a sleeping bag, and it's just fantastic. 
And every day you're very aware of your vulnerability. You feel more like an ant than a man. It shrinks you down to your appropriate size. You realize how small you are and how great is God. I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, only two, two total opposites. Therefore, choose life that both you and your seed may live. Now, what does he mean, choose life? Everybody chooses life. The junkies and the druggies in North Tyler choose life. The guy who is pushing drugs on the street near the high school chooses life. He wants to live. Everybody chooses life. The people of the honky-tonks on Friday night choose life. They like life. They like their cigarettes. They like their booze. They like to live. Everybody likes life. Nobody wants to die. The fellow who was interviewed the other night on television who had been a druggie and a pusher and a junkie most of his life was talking about the fact that even though he'd made two to $3,000 a day, he'd seen his own brother shot down by a forty-five. He himself had received three narrow escapes and death threats and had almost been murdered. He was having to burglarize all kinds of apartments and places to steal television sets to feed a drug habit of $2,000 a day. But he wanted to live. He wanted life. As a matter of fact, in the boredom of his little walk-up apartment, a father he never knew, he was a bastard child from a mother who was unmarried, a street boy living in that kind of community that millions of Americans are living in, his life was meaningless. He was a school dropout. He had no goals. He had no education. He didn't want to be nobody. didn't want to do nothing. Man, I just want to have fun. And so one day he had a chance for $3 to have a little snort of crack. He didn't believe what they said about becoming a junkie on just one shot of crack, but he tried it once. And instantly, he was hooked. It gave him what is called a rush, a sudden flooding of a heightened electrical-like experience that I guess is just short of orgasmic, or like a sneeze, or something that just gives goosebumps all over the whole body. And it was such a delight. He felt top of the world. He could do anything. He could leap tall buildings in a single bound. Uh, he was a giant. He was Rambo with a machine gun. He was Prince Charming. He was everything and everybody. He wasn't going to take nothing from nobody, man. He was hooked all of a sudden. Now, when that rush subsided and gradually drained away, and he looked around and realized he was still in the same doggy-looking, wretched old apartment, sleazy, wretched neighborhood with abandoned automobiles and broken glass and old deserted abandoned tenements and a lot of prostitutes and drug addicts on the street and police going by now and then and no job and no hope and no future, he thought, I want to feel good again. But he didn't have any money. Well, he got looking around the little old lady living there, and he knew which day it was that she went down to get her welfare check. So he followed her into her apartment, and he just muscled away the money that she had gotten when she cashed her check. Knocked her down, kicked her a few times for good measure. That was enough to get him several different fixes of crack. But then it went on to where he had to try to rob apartments and homes and steal guns and television sets and VCRs and cameras and jewelry and silver and whatever he could find. When you have hundreds and hundreds of junkies in any given city who have a two to a three thousand dollar habit a day, who are fifth, sixth, eighth grade dropouts who don't have a job, but who do 
feed that habit. Where do they get their money? Do you take the Tyler paper? Do you read the police reports? Our own office had VCRs taken three or four or five different times. We've tried to increase security and figure a way where we can lock it up in an interior place and keep them safe. And the insurance companies are the ones that put the bill because these things are insured in many people's homes and businesses. Why are insurance rates so high? Well, in the last week, if you saw it, every one of the major networks, it seemed, pitched in to go along with President Bush's declared war on drugs and the drugs are and all that they're trying to do. And there were dozens of hours of incisive reporting about education and the lack of it, about individual agencies, church, social, communal, school, and otherwise, trying to put together here and there programs to try to help one child, two children, 10, 20 children, to make a little bit of a difference in at least one community, to put these kids to work, to give them some sense of self-respect, because we already are experiencing not just society in difficulty, not just the near breakdown of society. Society has already broken down. The drug lords have declared war. The latest threat was not the fact that they have killed hundreds of judges, prosecuting attorneys, mayors, officials at every level of government, police, and so on in Colombia. But they are now threatening to bomb, and they have the sophisticated weapons such as POW anti-tank and hand-launched grenades and things like bazookas to do it, American nuclear plants. Here we are in a situation where people, a handful of them really, and did you see television when it showed some of their palatial estates? They have homes in Switzerland. They have homes in the Bahamas. They have homes in Europe. They have homes in Colombia. Giant swimming pools, dozens of rooms, wallowing around in billions of dollars. All because millions of Americans have to have a feeling have to have a kick, have to have a thrill, have to feel good, because their flesh lusts for a certain feeling, and because their minds, completely uneducated, semi or illiterate, no goals, no education, no hope, no job, no plan for the future whatsoever, are unable to guide or to direct those hulking bodies wherein only lust and the desire for physical satisfaction really resides. The facts are that the millions, the masses, are choosing death. They would argue about it. They would say, that's not where I'm headed. You can't tell me I'm going to die just because I snort a little H or take a little shot of crack. But it's exactly what is going to happen to them. He goes on to say in verse 20, that you may love the eternal your God, and that you may obey his voice, and that you may cleave unto him, for he is your life. Boy, how much you realize that as you grow older. I have a pump inside of me. <clears throat> you have a pump inside of you. And that pump is going like this all the time. I once shot a stag at Hinteris in the Alps, and the wife of the late King Leopold, Princess Lillian, was there. She had gone down to Houston, 
several years earlier, where she had had open-heart surgery by Dr. DeBakey, who was one of the most famous and one of the pioneers of open-heart surgery in the world. She knelt with her hands in the bloody cavity of that bull and took its heart in her hands and looked up to me and said, Ted, have you ever seen such a marvelous muscle in your entire life? She said, think of what a muscle. Night and day, night and day, 70 beats or more a minute, and it never tires. It never gets a cramp. It never slows down. It never stops. And she was talking, of course, about the analogy of her own heart, which had been diseased, and she'd had to have triple bypass surgery, and her muscle that was keeping her life going was in serious trouble. The doctor showed me yesterday a picture of a human heart and then segments of arteries that showed partial clogging and almost total clogging until an artery had a little aperture in it not much bigger around than a safety pin, a needle. And that was all the blood because there are two blood supplies. The pump is pumping blood to all the rest of your body. But in order to keep that muscle from cramping or spasming or just suddenly wearing out, it also must be supplied with blood. The reason they call it the coronary artery is because from a distance, if you look at the heart, it appears that those arteries that surround it shape or form or take the shape of a crown. So it's merely called a coronary artery or the coronary arteries because they supply blood to the heart muscle. And when people have a coronary or a coronary infarction or a heart attack, it is because the blood itself is not being supplied to that muscle, and that muscle is crying out for oxygen, and unlike a calf which will just charley horse, or a thigh that will just knot up, or an arm that will get so sore you can hardly lift it, the heart, if it stops, much more serious than a calf, a thigh, or an arm, you die, because your brain doesn't receive oxygen, your brain doesn't receive a blood supply anymore. The Apostle Paul quoted one of the prophets of a pagan and said, In him we live and move and have our being. You are never more aware of that than when your breath comes short. You can hardly breathe. You stop and you pant like an old broken down steam engine climbing a 60 degree slope at 12,000 feet. You're never more aware of that when you're drinking crystal clear water that comes out of the ground that is the result of last year's snowpack. You're never more aware of that than when you take food out of a package that's been stored for 12 years and add water to it, and 90% of what you're about to eat is water. Mashed potatoes in a package like that, four and a half cups, and four grown men can eat mashed potatoes. They don't taste too great, but basically much of what you eat anyway is water. Literally, every breath of air you sit there right now and breathe, God gives you. God made it. He designed it. The gases that are contained in what we call air are very carefully, by the lungs, separated. The lungs only want to take in oxygen. You don't want helium. You don't want hydrogen. You don't want ozone. You don't want the pollutants and all those other things. And the lungs in their tiny little capillaries of millions of little globules or sacklets are actually able to detect the difference. Isn't that wonderful? What a wonderful accident. How wonderfully we have evolved that the oxygen only through the tiny capillaries finds its way onto little platelets. A little platelet is like a dish that is serving food to the rest of the body, and away it goes. 
in a burst of speed like you cannot believe, which causes friction, which heats your body. You ever seen an artery severed? The blood will spurt yards from here to the wall because the pressure of that pump is fantastic. They took my blood pressure about 14 times yesterday at rest on a treadmill, faster, faster, higher and higher. And they said that they stressed most people to a MET, as they call it, a 12, and they got me to a 15. But I was back to normal, 66 beats a second, or I should say an hour, or is it, a, I'll get it right in a minute, a minute, 66 beats at a heart a minute, in about two minutes or less, after going all the way up, way above 140. And I was just pleased beyond belief that I found out that my life inside of here, things that are going on, are good. And that is fantastic to discover that. So it has come home to me very much more so than ever before. Truly, in him we live and move and have our being. He is your life and the length of your days, that you may dwell in the land which the Eternal swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. Now, Jesus put it a different way over in Matthew 7, 13, and 14 in the Sermon on the Mount. But again, he said there are only two ways. Two total opposites. Enter ye in at the straight gate, he says in verse 13 of Matthew 7, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight, narrow, difficult is the gate, and narrow is the way which leads unto life, and few there be that find it. I'm just now completing an article on the basis of today is not the only day of salvation, a shocking revelation of most people in Protestant churchianity who believe there is a great struggle between Christ and the devil, who believe that God has been frantically trying to save the world from the time of the early prophets, who believe that Jesus came to save the world, that Paul tried to save the Roman world, that all evangelists and teachers and religionists from that time to this have been trying to save the world, and that Sunday morning televangelists represent the best efforts of Almighty God to save the world. Jim and Tammy, Oral Roberts, Dr. Schuler, Dr. DeHaan or his son, all of them. They represent God's elite, God's best efforts, trying frantically to save the world. Now, on the other hand, at the entry to the wide gate are Johnny Carson, Pat Sajak, all the soapbox operas, Dallas and Dynasty, and all the other spin-offs, there must be a dozen of them from those programs, all books, journals, magazines, and literature, all comic books, including Batman, childhood fairy tales, all pornography, the age of total trash in literature, practically every bookstore, 99, 4400% of everything in it is absolute cheap trash that should never be in the mind of a human being. All television, all motion pictures, all entertainment, and with that, every satisfying thing that can appeal to a human appetite. That's part of the wide gate. Pleasing things to touch. Pleasing things to smell, like cigarettes or a snuff box. Pleasing things to taste, like all kinds of mixed drinks and alcohol and sugar and fat and fried foods and starch and seafood and a pork chop and 
maybe things even like possum and squirrel and rabbit in season. Wonderful things to taste. The odor and the magnificent smell of that pork roast that mom is getting ready or that wonderful uh, bunch of fried shrimp they're going to serve down here at a cut rate or catfish at the catfish restaurant. And they're all over East Texas. All of those wonderful things that appeal to the five senses of touch and taste and sound and sight. People want to go to the movie to hear and to see. And while they're hearing and seeing and looking at all these fantasies, Rambo really won the Vietnam War. We didn't lose it. They're sitting there with a gigantic Coke filled with chemicals and artificial color and a gigantic box of popcorn with a lot of artificial butter and heavy with salt. And that's going in their mouth. And their jaws are chewing away, so they're enjoying that while their eyes are taking in all this fantasy and their bodies are slumped over in an uncomfortable chair and they're probably breathing some smoke at the same time. It's marvelous what people will do to try to satiate the human physical appetite. He said, straight is the gate and narrow is the way. Now, nobody would want that. Children certainly don't want that. Why would you want an unlit, narrow, torturous, difficult, ruddy, rocky, unattractive road as opposed to Broadway? We, we live here, we're, we're, you know, Broadway out here. Broadway. Not the way of the broads, but Broadway. I guess it could be that if you look at it in society. Straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leads unto life, and few there be that find it. In my article, I opine how utterly rare a thing it is. And look at these empty seats, if you doubt it. That a human being in this world, even this world of churchianity, will decide to obey God. stiff necks, and that they will get on their knees and humbly accept God's Sabbath day. You look around the world at the great, enormous churches. I had a doctor tell me that he believes that every morning he has his priorities right. I talked to the man upstairs first. The Lord and I have a chat. He's first in my life. And then after that, comes my wife, and after that comes my business, and so on. i got my priorities right now after all these years. I have my priorities right. I've got so many friends out at Emerald Bay that have that same relationship with their God. Small letter G. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. 2 Corinthians 11. The God of this world. You and me, Lord. They have a relationship. They have an arrangement. they got it all tucked away in their mind. The Lord and I. Just you and me, Lord. And they know they're going to be there. Well, Garner Ted, we're all trying to get to the same place. It's just by different routes, isn't it? They go away laughing. I'll say, no. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. They go away laughing. But they don't know. And it is so absolutely rare a thing for a person to accept God's Sabbath, to accept God's truth, and to begin to really obey God. The most dramatic example of these two total opposites is over in Galatians, the fifth chapter. In Galatians 5, we see the works, and they all are works of the flesh and the works of the Spirit. And Jesus Christ of Nazareth makes it very clear that we are going to be judged according to our works, no matter what the Sunday preachers say. I'm going to read up to this because I think the entire chapter is very interesting. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Now here he's talking about religion being a bondage. 
Most of us as young people, and I was certainly no exception, looked upon religion as bondage. I looked upon the truth as bondage. I looked upon the Sabbath and the Ten Commandments as bondage. I wanted to smoke like the other kids, so I did. Smoked for eight years. Had a terrible time trying to break it. I had a call the other day on the telephone from a man who was almost my age, up in his middle 1950s. He was practically in tears. He was desperate to break the smoking habit, and he couldn't. He'd tried everything. He didn't have the money to go to Schick. He didn't have the money. He couldn't stop to check into a hospital. He was up to three packs a day, and he knew it was killing him, and he wanted to quit, but it had such a hold of him, and I tried to explain to him that it was his capillaries, that it was his body, it was not his mind, and that he needed to get special help and pray about it and perhaps check into the Schick program or look in the yellow pages and see where he could get some help. Tried to encourage him as best I could, but I don't know what success he's going to have. It is a physical appetite which has become completely addictive, which has now taken over his entire body, and to which he is a slave. He is not in control. That desire of his system, even the various cells of his body, is really ruling his mind. An appetite is in control of his decision-making process, and he has no real control over it. Liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. He talks about the kind of freedom that very few people ever know. How about freedom from fear? That is, fear of an accident, fear of disease, fear of failure, fear of lack of money, fear of injury, fear of death. But most people fear all of those things very, very greatly. They fear crime. They fear a break-in. They fear robbery, rape, or a mugging. They fear accident or sickness or disease. They fear financial reversal. Millions of people that play the stock market are in fear all the time. I know a gentleman who retired recently. He is, I'm sure, a millionaire, and he is in fear every moment of his life. He is not secure. He worries about the state of IBM stocks. He worries about his other stock investment. He's going to go out and try to get another part-time job just to supplement his income here pretty soon now. He's not secure yet. He can never really feel totally secure because he's not free with the liberty wherein Christ has made us free. Now, Paul here is talking to people in the area of Galatia, a province of Asia Minor, who wanted to be like many brethren I know who have left the Church of God International. Some who decided that the Passover should be observed one day differently than we observe it. Others who have decided that they should observe the Holy Days based upon the observable new moon in Jerusalem. Others who decide that we should no longer speak Spanish or English or French or Dutch or German we should no longer address God. We should no longer address Jesucristo or Nuestra Señora en los cielos. We should no longer say God or Jesus Christ, but we should say Yahweh or Yahweh or Yahweh or Yahweh or Yahshua or Joshua or however they want to pronounce it. And to get that pronunciation just right. Like on Sunday on television, they get it just right. They never say the Lord. They say the Lord. It's just so holy. Oh, if we could just get closer to the Lord. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you. 
And we get this emotion in it. We say it just right. Now, these people have decided that since they are doing it just right, that they're right, and we're all wrong. So they're going to go into the kingdom of God. We're not. These people in Galatia thought, hey, those Jews have got circumcision. You can read it all and I won't belabor it. I, Paul, say unto you that if you be circumcised, Christ should profit you nothing. They wanted to go back into the rituals of the Levitical priesthood and the religion of the added do's and don'ts of Talmudic tradition that was based upon, as we say, the laws of Moses. I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is better to do the whole law. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. And people misunderstand this. He's talking about the book of the law, the works of the law, about the Mosaic rituals. And he's talking about the covenant that God made with Abraham as the sign in Abraham's flesh and later on with Moses himself. Abraham, who was almost 100 years of age when God insisted that he become circumcised. But as Jesus Christ of Nazareth has now fulfilled all of the shadowy types that led up to his sacrifice, and we are now to be, as it says, circumcised in the foreskins of our heart, Jeremiah 4.4, and circumcision is of the spirit and not in the flesh, as he says in verse 9, for in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which works by or according to love. But there are people to whom those physical trappings are extremely important. I remember meeting a little lady the other day whom I had known from the time I was five, six, seven years of age. I have never seen that lady in or out of church in my entire life without a white turban, semi-turban, on her head. I've seen little old ladies come to church who have been in the Seventh-day Adventist church, have been in different churches, and they will not darken the door of a church without a hat or a little lace bonnet of some sort on their head because they misunderstand 1 Corinthians 11. You've heard of the Amish. You've heard of the Hooterites. Are you aware of people to whom religion consists of black suits, beaver hats, long ringlets, bonnets, certain types of clothing? Well, of course you are because there are such people. That to be holy, you wear a costume. There are those who, to be holy, must pronounce a name just right, must take their body, get in their car, go to a place of worship, and walk in with all the smugness and conceit of any human being huffed up with vanity. I am here on the first of the observable new moon. Where are all the other carnal people? And they feel so righteous. All my life from my boyhood I have been acquainted with self-righteousness, which is why God said all your righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and when you have done all that which is commanded, you say, I'm an unprofitable servant. I've merely done that which was my duty to do. He goes on to say, you did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? This persuasion does not come of him that called you. This persuasion to go back into the cuttings of the flesh is not from Christ. A little leaven. Interesting. How about that? Not sin. Is it a sin to be circumcised? No, it's hygienic. If you want to take your boy down to get circumcised, you know, we've had people come up to us and say, now, I need an answer from the ministry because the eighth day is going to be on the Sabbath. How do I do that? I look at them in pity and say, why didn't you have him circumcised the moment he was born? Why do you wait till the eighth day? Well, it says in the Bible to wait till the eighth day. 
It does. I'll tell you, some people always equate leaven with sin. But this kind of leaven is super self-righteousness. It is unnecessary ritualism of trying to get yourself into a particular position of acceptance before God by some physical outward ritual or manifestation of the flesh, and God's Word calls it leaven. Is it leavening when God says, Be thou not righteous over much? Why should you destroy yourself before the time? Is it possible to be overmuch righteous, meaning self-righteous? Oh, yes, absolutely. A little leaven leavens a whole lump, and that leavening was circumcision. He said in verse 13, Brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Only don't use liberty or freedom spiritually as an occasion to the flesh, but by love serving one another, for the law is fulfilled in one word, all the law, even this, verse 14. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And what happens every time somebody decides they've discovered the key? The one thing that is going to make them more righteous. Passover on the 15th. The observable new moon. The pronouncement of the sacred name. This. If you bite and devour one another, then from that so-called knowledge always comes an adversarial relationship. I now know something you do not. I am now standing a little taller. I'm a little closer to favor with God than you are. And if you do not accept it, you are rejecting me. Somehow, you are now no longer my friend, but you have become my enemy. The us-them, the we-they, the exclusivity of people who decide they are the ones with God's truth and no one else has it. I'm so familiar with it and have seen it all of my life. If you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. These were people who were judging their spirituality. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh, the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, the seventh chapter, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Verse 19. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. They are these, adultery, fornication. I'll lump those together. The Greek word porneia includes them all, including homosexuality, transvestism, perversion of every kind, including sodomy, and the incredible onslaught of AIDS. How difficult is it for youngsters growing up today who are able to go to a 7-Eleven store and look at the exposed genitalia of men or women in magazine after magazine of filthy, smutty, pornographic content, which would have been passed around secretly in the hallways of Eugene High School in 1939-40-41 in my day when I went to school and giggled over by nasty little boys who were sneaking peeks at dirty books smuggled out of Tijuana, Mexico. And today it is out there as if an avalanche of pornography. Practically all the entertainment media laud it, praise it, urge it, and say it's great. Go ahead and do it. You know that, and I know it. As I watched on television a teacher trying to deal with 11-year-old girls, most
the races. But that just was a happenstance. It happened to be a particular school, and I think it was over in Dallas, Texas. She was Chicana, and her class was mixed white, mostly Chicana and black. And she was dealing with how little girls, age 11 and 12, should say no to the boys who want sex. Some of the statistics they put on that program were absolutely mind-boggling. That up to 90% of boys age 16 have lost their virginity, and 60-some percent of all girls have. It talked about the percentages of young black girls getting pregnant, that of all teen pregnancies up in the 90th percentile among the blacks in the United States are out of wedlock, that 50% of all teen marriages fail in the first five years, that the percentages of illegitimacy and the impact to the American taxpayer because of the welfare mothers who can go to get a few more dollars per month for the second, third, fourth, and fifth child from different, hus quote, husbands, I mean different, quote, lovers, end quote, is enormous. In our prayer breakfast, we read a letter from a lady who was distraught because she had twin daughters. She said they'd been good girls, they'd never given her any problem, but between the two of them, they had five illegitimate children. The one's husband was on drugs, and she was acting very, very strangely. The mother didn't want to believe she was on drugs, but she wanted prayers for herself and her family. And Bronson James was there, who had been a part-time teacher in some of the schools in Detroit, and he began to tell us of some of the things that he knew firsthand that were just mind-boggling of people that are living in sewers and cesspools of life, to whom this type of thing is a daily way of life. We like to, as it was mentioned, Dr. DeHaan said, don't sweep the rug under the carpet. A lot of good little so-called Christians running about, living in their little communities, like out at Emerald Bay behind locked gates, the only black that ever gets in works in the kitchen. And they are completely isolated from the rest of civilization. They're all waiting to die. Guess who died the other day? They're sitting in the front porch talking about who died and the next funeral to come, so on. And it's a sort of a semi-retirement place. And they are utterly unaware of what goes on in North Tyler. Utterly unaware and basically don't care of what goes on in communities all around here where the drug lords reach in little tiny communities like Big Sandy and White House and Bullard in the high school out there, and where kids are buying drugs for $3 for one shot of crack from dirty street peddlers, and that it comes from Dallas, and before that from Miami or Los Angeles, and before that from Columbia, and finds its way to little tiny towns like Bullard and Mount Sylvan and White House, Tyler, Texas, and a lot of us are completely oblivious to it. But it says the works of the flesh are manifest, they are evident. He really means that it's evidently what are the works of the flesh, and I'm putting a slightly different connotation on that because it is just out there so blatantly today. As he said, they advertise their sin, yea, they hide it not. Uncleanness. Now, that means mental, physical. It doesn't just mean dirty fingernails, dirty ears, and dirty, dirty collars or ring around a collar. It's talking about sexual and mental and emotional, moral uncleanness. Lasciviousness really means overdoing whatever you do, just going at it with both hands greedily, overindulging. I look at so many Americans who are overweight, so many Americans who overdo alcohol, who overdo practically everything. It's a time of overdoing it, of overindulgence in things which taken in, in uh, moderation rather than excess would be all right.
For example, at the feast time, don't take those extra drinks beyond the one that should have been the last one. But there have been cases of drunkenness at the Feast of Tabernacles, and cases where people have gotten into trouble. Indeed, my experience in many years in God's church, there have been young girls who have gone home from the Feast of Tabernacles expecting a baby. It's happened. Rarely, hopefully, very rarely, but it has happened. Isn't it amazing how even in a church environment, if you get enough human beings together of human appetites, that people can give in to various physical temptations and can actually get involved in horrifying sins, even in a so-called spiritual environment. Because it says that these appetites of the flesh are powerful, and they are contrary to the Spirit, and they are against the Spirit, so that you do not do what you wish you would. Idolatry. Now, idolatry is, of course, at the basis of all advertising. Every time they run a gigantic, huge, big Lincoln or a Cadillac or a little racy, bright red Porsche convertible for $60,000, or they have the wheel show with people with steam coming out of their ears and nostrils and their eyes are going around tilt with plums and pears in them, and they're jumping up and down. Here are some ladies a little bit overstuffed, and they're absolutely jumping that high off the ground and about to break their ankles because they're going to get a motor home. They're going to get a trip to the Caribbean. They're going to get $25,000 cash. You know what the most watched, best known, most famous game show is in America today? The Wheel of Fortune, named after the Greek goddess of Fortuna, or good luck. And the idea is that by spinning that wheel, millions of people watch vicariously and get a vicarious secondhand thrill out of watching other people get something for nothing. Not earning money from blood, sweat, and tears and hard work, but suddenly just having a giant bag of cash drop into their lap by guessing a word. People love that. All advertising shows before the American eyes on that marble called television idolatry. Whatever is something after which you really lust, something that you, you want so badly, something that is basically closest to your heart's desire, new clothing, a trip, a new car, a new home, whatever it is that you pin your hopes on, you just want, that becomes idolatry. I remember years ago, I've only seen maybe two or three of these in my entire life. Bob Kuhn trod this in and showed it to me, I think. But there was a Mad Magazine issue, and it showed plate after plate after plate, or picture after picture, page after page. It was an American family, a father and a mother, and I think a boy and a girl. And they were just standing before one show window after another. First, it was an automobile show window, and inside were all these glittering models. And in great capital letters, all of them were saying, I want... The next picture, it showed a clothing store. The next picture, a hardware store. The next picture, a sporting goods store. And stores with just all sorts of wonderful things to buy. And all of them were saying mentally, I want. And they were just lusting after what they could see with the eye. I'm a terrible shopper. I'm the last person in the world you ever want to go shopping with. Because I won't look. I will not, quote, shop, end quote. I will go straight to a rack in a men's clothing store to the 40 regulars, and I will look if I have my mind made up on a light gray or a dark blue, and if they have a light gray or a dark blue and a 40, I'll say, I'll take that one. 
and I'll pay it, and I'll go out with it. But I will not go through all that rack, and I won't go looking at all kinds of stuff. If I'm not in there for slacks, I won't look for slacks. I'm not in there for socks, he can't get me to look at the rack of socks. I won't do it. I'm the world's worst person to go shopping with. I cannot stand for a salesman to come up to me and tell me, can I help you? I'll say, no thanks, I'll, I'll be just fine, I'll help myself. I'm really bad about that. I confess it. I'm terrible. Because the idea of people going into stores and going around and fingering things and taking them off the hangers and looking at them and touching the merchandise when they have no more intention of buying than anything but just sort of lusting after what is in there drives me crazy. I just cannot handle it. I say that idolatry is at the very basis of all advertising. Witchcraft. Now, in this last year, we've been given a dose, a very sobering and a shocking dose of the fact that witchcraft does not belong to Salem, Massachusetts in the 1600s or even to the medieval times in ancient Europe or England, but is extant in Tyler, Texas and around these little communities that I have mentioned. And we learned of these ritualistic killings in Mexico, and I won't belabor that except to say that there are so-called covens and there are witches within far less than 200 miles of where you sit. And that there are many people who will go and buy all kinds of literature and will go down here and buy books and who love to hang up in their own homes all kinds of surrealistic charts of like Merlin and Neptune and pagan gods and black magic. And it's not just associated with Halloween, which is coming up very, very shortly now, where you will see a real outburst of witchcraft and actually playing with it and making it a national holiday like it is a plaything of ghosts and goblins and they'll tell little children the hobgoblins and the poltergeists are about tonight and black cats and witches with broomsticks and people will buy those in department stores and hang them up in a school classroom put them on the windows and decorate their homes with the symbols of witchcraft but we're a christian nation hatred we're all familiar with that. Who do you hate? Do you hate anybody? Is there anybody you hate just a little bit, once in a while? Variants, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, all of these evil attributes that are so commonly human and so commonplace all about us. Envyings, murders, mass murders, and just yesterday, day before, some demented idiot takes an AK-47 and goes into some buildings over in Louisville, Kentucky, and just kills, I forget, was it seven people, and injured something like 12 more, deciding, I'm going to kill myself, but I'm just going to shoot into the bullets into the bodies of people that I don't even know, and just kill them brutally. This poor woman on television saying that her husband had been shot in both arms and both legs, and people saying, you don't have any idea what a, an AK-47 will do to a human body up close. Well, I do. I've probably killed over 50 deer in my life, and I've seen what a bullet will do to a little deer, and I don't want to see what a bullet will do to a man, but I've seen what automobiles will do to men. Murders all about us every day. Drunkenness every day. I mean, there are people that... I know that Dale uh, Hampton, one of our ministers years ago in a worldwide church, let alcohol creep up on him, and he became an alcoholic. Finally, he recognized it, and with God's help, he overcame it. He went to the AA. He got whatever help he needed. And he, as they say, got dried out. He made it his life's work within the ministry and went about with our blessing 
conducting seminars for church people because the worldwide church and the Church of God International have no proscriptions against alcohol. We know that Christ changed water into wine. We know that it's all right at the Feast of Tabernacles to drink alcohol in moderation, with temperance. But unfortunately, many people let it creep up on them. They become what is called social drinkers. They get to the point that they just have to have it. And they don't want to confess it to themselves that they've actually experienced a complete chemical change in their own metabolism, and they are an alcoholic. They don't want to admit that, but they become alcoholic. The way to check is to find out by just saying, can I quit for weeks or months at a time? Or do I have to have a little bit every day? If you have to have a little bit every day, you are in serious trouble. If you can walk away from it, and you can go day after day and not miss it, no big problem. You can go back and have a drink now and then and enjoy it. But if it becomes a part of your life where it's with you all the time, drunkenness, and that is a sin, and God says, quote, no drunkard shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. Revelings, and that's where you get to partying, and parties always disintegrate. They always go downhill. They start with the people showing up, hi, how are you doing, everybody greeting everybody at the door, how about a drink? And then later on, two, three, four drinks, wait till you see them about to leave. That's the proverbial guy standing on the table with a lampshade as the hat, and everything goes downhill. Revelings, basically, those are at Christmas time, around the eggnog bowl, our office parties, and Halloween, and things of that nature, neighborhood parties, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Two ways. The way of human fleshly physical appetite, which is the way of, of least resistance, the way of sliding downhill, the way of no effort. It doesn't take any effort at all to get on drugs. It's practically effortless for a little girl to get pregnant. There's no real effort to it to just sample what the world has. But it takes willpower, it takes strength, courage, energy. It takes a lot of mental control to swim upstream against all of the peer pressure and what is going on around you in the schools and society and its institutions and to do the opposite. It says, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, that could be broken down into a whole book. The love of God the Father toward Jesus Christ is the greatest love of which we could ever know. The love of God toward mankind, the love of Christ toward mankind, is the greatest love of which we could ever know. The love that you are to have toward God should be the greatest love of your life, is it really? Are you at least a little bit like those who have gone before, including Solomon and David, who were such admirers of nature, of how David said, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and Solomon in his Proverbs and Ecclesiastes talking about the heavens and so on. Do you understand that the very emotion of love and every physical sense that goes with it, of touch, a caress from a husband or a wife, a kiss from a son or a daughter or a grandchild, Every wonderful, warm emotion you experience putting your arm around someone you love is given you by the Creator and the Designer of humankind who makes it possible. God invented love. Animals have momentary, seasonal attraction. 
They have a necessary biological cycle, and they reproduce. But there's no love. They go off, and the bachelor bull elk is up by himself, and a, a group of elk are all males by themselves, and the cows are all by themselves. The next year, the big bull gathers a harem. If he can, 120 of them. It's merely a biological urge. But a man, he is to be married to one wife for all of his lifetime. And he is to engender children made in his and his wife's image. And the Bible says, happy is that man whose quiver is full of them. They are like little plants and olive trees. And it describes a scene through David's psalm of a microcosm of the kingdom of God. The kind of joy, the kind of love that is available to humankind in marriage is the greatest of all. Christ, therefore, uses the analogy of marriage for his wedding supper when he comes to his church and when all of us are to be changed instantly and to become a member of God's family. It is a wedding supper. He is the bridegroom. We are the bride. That closeness where they become one flesh because we're to become a very member of the family of God is the closest possible human relationship upon which Almighty God could draw to show us what the second coming of Christ and being inducted into the kingdom of God is all about. All kinds of love. Love of a wife toward a husband, of a mother toward a daughter, a father toward a son, a brother toward a sister, a boy toward a puppy. Love of a child toward a father or a mother. Different ways of expressing love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And what do every one of these people out here in these neighborhoods who get on crack, who want to have a thrill, who want to have some kind of a satisfying experience, really, down inside, want. Massive numbers of them have never known a stable home. They have never known the love and the care of a father and a mother in their appropriate, God-given place, or as we say, roles, which I don't like as a word. It's not a role like you're play-acting. It is what God has set. They've never known that. Many of them don't know who their father is. They've had a wretched life. They have not had the incentive or they have not had the encouragement to ever make anything of themselves. They've dropped out of school because there was no incentive there. What they want is the very things I'm reading here, love, joy, peace, long-suffering. And they're looking for it down the wrong road. They don't know that God's Word would give it to them. They don't know that obeying God, finding the right woman, marrying in love, and sticking with that person for life is exactly what Almighty God intends and is the greatest reward that anybody could ever have. Joy. I look at people, sometimes even in church, and I see people with hard expressions and dismal-looking expressions on their faces that very rarely ever seem to really exude any feeling of joy, any feeling of ebullience, as we say, or being very, very happy, being a jolly kind of a person. Most people are not. Only few people are. Many people used to make the statement that some obese people are very, very jolly because they can't run. And, uh, you know, if you, want to get, you don't want to get in a fight, so if you're real, real overweight and you can't run, you've got to be happy. Well, I don't know if that's true or not, but it seems to be true that many people are jolly who are obese. Maybe that just comes to the territory. Love, joy, peace. I'll tell you what, peace of mind and the depth of a good, solid, dreamless sleep, a waking refreshed in the morning, is something very few people have. 
just peace of mind without a worry that it is gnawing away at your innards all the time and causing, you'd be amazed at what your body glands can do to your stomach and what it can do to your body. We know that up to 50% of certain illnesses all the way to pseudo-pregnancies of the eighth month are psychosomatically derived. The doctors have actually chronicled cases where people have swelled up and thought they were pregnant and weren't. And where people can do things to their body by releasing certain acids and so on because of worry. When was your last worry, your last nightmare? I know that when you go through those nightmares in a family, when things are tough, when there are horrible things happening that you wish were not occurring, you can't have peace. You don't have peace during the day. You don't have peace among yourselves. You don't have a peaceful sleep. It isn't a beautiful morning when you wake up, even if the sun is shining and a hummingbird is outside the window, because your, your mind is on this problem and you don't have peace. At the Feast of Tabernacles, I'll give you a greater idea about what to do about some of that, perhaps. Long-suffering, which is, of course, not a very common quality to most of us. We're willing to suffer a few seconds, at the most a few minutes. And then that guy that got in front of us in line is in for a real dressing down. Uh, we're, we're willing to suffer a bad telephone call, a bad experience, a bad encounter. And then it's going to be our turn to say, that did it. Uh, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Now it's my turn to get some vengeance. But this is talking about the kind of long-suffering that we see in 1 Corinthians 13. Gentleness, goodness, faith, because that is absolutely the character of Jesus Christ. That's the way he was. Meekness, temperance, and guess what? There's no law against that. There's no law against two or three beers in the course of a whole evening. There is a law against more than that. There is no law against sitting down and writing to someone and making them feel good on the Sabbath. There's no law against being happy, no law against expressing love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. You're within the law. If a housewife feels absolutely wonderful following spring cleaning, if someone feels absolutely wonderful when he's gotten in his winter wood, if a farmer feels wonderful when the crops are in the barn and the cattle are safely tucked away and the hay is stacked in there and he knows the winter feed is ready, if you feel wonderful when a job is well done, when it's payday, when there is accomplishment to look back upon, a feeling of complete and total satisfaction, then how satisfied we should feel when we can look along our back trail, not on the Sabbath when we're sitting in church when it is so easy, but during the workaday week when it is so hard, and say, I lived my life with love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, and faith, with meekness and temperance, and I broke no law. God says there are only two ways to go. They're absolute opposites. There is the way of the broad, well-lit, attractive way of this world, of its sensual appetites, of its desires, of its entertainment, of everything that it continually pokes at you and says, enjoy, indulge, have some of this, take some of this. And there is the way of God's word, which many people will tell you, repeating one of Satan's lies, that it's dull and it's gray and drab and uninteresting. It's no fun or no thrills, no kicks. Let me tell you something. I'm 59. I got the kick of my life the last couple of weeks. And when I'm 60, I want to do it again. And there is no thrill like standing above the line where trees can grow at 13,000 feet 
with my son, who was only in his early 30s, and look for a hundred miles in all directions and stand there and fill my lungs with air so thin that 90% of the men my age, if I dragged them up, they would be lying at my feet dead. There is no thrill like knowing that by controlling alcohol, watching my diet, continuing with exercise, and controlling those aspects of my life, that I can look forward to that when I'm 60, 61, 62, 63, 64. Sixty-five.